preparing for our breakfast, and many attended. Many of you uh, probably did not, uh, but it was um, a, a time for God's people to get together and uh, eat good food and enjoy uh, good fellowship. And so, very thankful for all those who put that uh, put forth effort to make that happen. Um, and so, we look forward to doing more of these type of events. Uh, but with the, dis- the distractions of the day, I've had my own. You probably had some this morning. I thought, let's just begin uh, our our time uh, before the sermon and go before the Lord in prayer. And and now I'll remember to pray for the Lairds because I think I totally spaced out on it. Father, I thank you for, again, this time and this particular part of our service where we engage in your word in a way where we hope we are able to apply it to life. Not just to hear your word, but to be hearing your word so that we live your word. And so, Father, I pray for all the distractions that have already happened uh, before we got here, while we were here, uh, Lord, I pray that we'd be able to put those off to the side and focus upon what it is that you have for us to know, to learn, and to live. Father, I thank you that we can celebrate the homegoing of Liberta. And uh, Lord, I, I know her personally, and I'm very thankful for the, her sweet demeanor that I knew so many years ago. But in the midst of these last few years, she's been struggling with Alzheimer's and and, uh, wasn't the same old Liberta. But she is fully alive and rejoicing in your presence even now. And so we praise you for her testimony. And we thank you, Father, for her family's testimony. We pray for her husband and for her kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. Lord, just pray that uh, they would all be finding strength uh, in you, uh, finding peace in you. We thank you for the gospel, Father. It's what enables us to be here today, to sing your praises, and to respond to your word. We praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so we're, we're in our study of Matthew, and I just wanted to jump right in and talk about, this was last week's uh, s- sermon, Focusing on chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, and I, and I, I titled it An Invitation to Christian Virtue because we were talking about the Beatitudes and one of the most famous passages of Scripture that, uh, that people hear and they know there's something different about these words. When they're read, they, they, they are a smack to the face, uh, fresh water to, to uh, wake, you, wake a person up because what, what's being portrayed in, in the, the, those verses of the Beatitudes that we call the Beatitudes are uh, what life in Christ is supposed to look like. It's what a life that glorifies God is supposed to look like. And so uh, I, I invited you, I said that Jesus invites us through the Beatitudes to grow in Christian virtues. And we're going to talk just a little bit more about virtues, and I'm going to bring another word into the discussion today. But these are, the, these are the virtues that we're invited to participate in. We're invited to have these part of our life. Just, this is all rehearsed from last week. But we are invited to be poor in spirit. The idea of bankrupt. The idea that we bring nothing to the table. When we come to God, we come empty. We come dead. And our spirit is enlivened by, by the grace of God as we come to faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. We are called to grieve, the idea of mourn. Uh, it, we're, we're to grieve over what grieves God. Sin grieves God. 
Certainly there are those who are are grieving the death of a loved one, but what we're saying here as part of who we are as brothers and sisters in Christ, as children of God, we are called to grieve over what grieves God. When Esther was sharing about the Mahdi people and how the, the, the Bible is not in their language yet, did you, did you get a tad emotional? Did something just tug at you like, what? In the 21st century, there are, there are groups of people who do not have the words of life in their language, and yet I have probably 15 or 20 copies of the Bible in my library and in my car and in my home. We are to grieve over what grieves God. We are invited to live a life of humility. That's, not, that's the idea of meekness. Meekness is not weakness. We are called as children of God to live meekly, humbly around those. We are not supposed to be boastful, prideful, arrogant. That's the way of the world. We're not supposed to be that way. We are invited to strongly desire righteousness. That idea of strongly desire is the idea of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. I must have my morsel of righteousness today. I must have the drink from the well. I strongly desire that in my life. And, 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 and I say that. That's what we're supposed to feel. I'm not saying that's true of me all the time. It's not. But it ought to be. We are, to, we are invited to a life of active mercy, not just mercy as in I throw a few bucks in, in, in somebody's coffer so they can uh, you know, care, care for somebody. No, I'm, I'm the, the good Samaritan walking in binding wounds and carrying and you know, walking while my, my animal, beast of burden, carries the person. Right? We're supposed to be actively engaged in mercy. We're invited to a life of genuine devotion. Again, this is the idea of true of heart, right? We're supposed to be those, those people who are not just living the facade of religion, but engaged in genuine devotion of God. We are to bring peace to relationships, and we are to suffer well for following Jesus. Both those, as we deal with uh, peace and relationships, it's the idea of, of being involved in other people's lives. And where we see conflict between brothers and sisters, or however that works, we are that voice that would say, let's see what God has to say about this. Suffering is the idea of, of, of being persecuted for our faith. And so that we, we, we talked about those virtues, but then we said being like Jesus invites persecution. And I don't know if you've experienced it. I invite you to experience it. Live out the virtues in your life, and more than likely, you will encounter aspects of persecution. It may be persecution on a minor scale. It may cost you your life. There may be someone in here that someday might be a martyr for Jesus Christ. Being like Jesus invites persecution, but we we concluded with the idea of, nevertheless, bring it on, right? It's the idea of rejoice, persevere, and radiate the light of Christ. Rejoice is the idea of, listen, rejoice because the prophets, this is the way people treated the prophets. You're in good company if you're going to be persecuted for following Jesus. Persevere, you're salt. You're that that preserving agent in our society by the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And and so persevere through the persecution because he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. And then radiate the light of Christ. This is is coming from uh, this last verse, which is our theme verse 
for the year uh, that we've been, I haven't reminded you often enough about it, but here it is. Let your light so shine before men. We are so called to live out our faith so other people notice, that they may see your good works. Well, what kind of good works are we talking about? Well, I think the way some of this interacts with what we've already talked about is, if you have the virtues that are described in the Beatitudes, if, if they are characteristic of you, people are seeing them as you live out your life. It's not necessarily just doing a good work. I feed the poor. I, I bring clothes to the needy. I think it's the idea, it's right on the heels of the Beatitudes, the idea that we are living out the Christian life in a way where people see it in whatever context that we are in. And what's the result? They glorify our Father in heaven. It's, it's beautiful. All right, this is, this is the Christian life. And this is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the intro, verses 1 through 16 of chapter 5, kind of, kind of just the introduction, all right? It hooks you in because it's like, I want to be that person. And that, that's part of what we're trying to portray as, as we engage in this text is, do you want to be that person who possesses these virtues? So there's our theme slide, but it's the idea that Christ in us reveals Christ to our community. Think about the Christ that the Mahdi people will see in Esther. I'm not lifting her up on a pedestal. I'm lifting her, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, up as he was lifted up for us. I'm just saying let's exalt him today because as she seeks to live out, those and those that are working with her, as they seek to, to understand this truth that Christ is in them, and they proceed to say, no, it's important that not only is he in me, but I reveal his presence to those around me. And she will go to great lengths, and they will go to great lengths to learn the language and, and bring the word of God to people who do not know the Word of God. And here we are in 21st century America saying that we are just like them and that we have the ability to shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, since he is in every believer, as we live out the Beatitudes, we will reveal Christ to our community. They can't help but take notice when we live by kingdom virtues. They can't help it. But how can we know that our light is shining before people uh, to the glory of God? I mean, how is it that we know? I love that question. You've heard me ask it many times. How do we know that we know? And, and, and the reality is, Scripture is very clear. We can know certain things. When our lives display kingdom virtues, the Beatitudes, Jesus declares that we have the favor of God upon us. Blessed is the person who is poor in spirit. Blessed is the person. God's favor is upon you. When you are able to live the Christian life, when you're able to exhibit and display the kingdom virtues, you don't have to ask if God is happy. He's saying, you are blessed. You are found in my favor when these kingdom virtues, vir virtues are true of you. So as we get into today's text, which is four verses, uh, what we're going to engage in is this thought. A life which displays kingdom virtues has its foundation in Christ's kingdom ethic. I'm going to just pause there for a while. You're going to see this probably two more times through the sermon. A life which displays kingdom virtues, what we've already talked about, that life that is genuinely demonstrating these virtues, 
has its foundation in Christ's kingdom ethic. What do I mean by kingdom ethic? Well, let me just, let's just define a couple words and then we'll talk about it. Virtue is this idea of behavior showing high moral standards. This is out of a dictionary. I forget which one. I went online, copied it, pasted it, right? It, virtue is this idea of behavior showing high moral standards. Ethic is, is a set of moral principles. So notice it, it's a set. It's not just one thing. It's kind of a, a number of things coming together. When we talk about a person that has a good work ethic, it's someone that understands that to work hard, to work uh, diligently, uh, to work to completion, all right? Uh, we, we're, this idea, they have a good work ethic. We, we kind of get that term. So if we bring this into a spiritual realm, right, versus a Christian realm, we'll say virtue is behavior showing biblical standards and, and, a, and, and a set of biblical principles that help guide those biblical standards, those, biz, those uh, biblical actions that I may use that word later too. So this virtue ethic dynamic is, is going on here. And so when we say a life which displays kingdom virtues has its foundation in, in Christ's kingdom ethics, there are a series of principles that, that communicate God, uh, Christ's kingdom ethic. Now, I, I will say that what I'm going to discuss today is not exhaustive. The principles we're, gonna, we're, we're going to engage in today are not exhaustive, but these are the ones that I believe shape the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount is, is beginning. These are the first, the actual core teaching part as we're going to look at today. In 17, 18, 19, and 20, he kind of says, here are some principles. And then he starts applying those principles. In the subsequent sermons, we're going to talk about anger. We're going to talk about lust. We're going to talk about divorce. We're going to talk about all the things that, that Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say. And so as, as we talk about those things in the, in the coming weeks, some of them I'll do, some of the other pastors will do, but I'll just say, listen, a life which displays the virtues that we are supposed to be desiring in our life, it has as a foundation uh, Christ's kingdom ethic. And so this set of principles. And so we're going to uh, what is Christ's kingdom ethic? I can't put it in a sentence, but I will say this. Principles of Christ's kingdom ethic are given to us in this Sermon on the Mount. And we're specifically going to look at uh, four of them. All right? So four principles which are part of Christ's kingdom ethic. It's just part of it because I think there's, there's more. Uh, and, and, but I, it's too exalted. I can't, I can't possibly attain to that in probably even a whole series of sermons. I, I, we'll be learning Christ's kingdom ethic, I believe, until, well, we'll talk about it in the text, until he comes, all right? So principle number one is in Matthew 5, 17. He says, Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law and the prophets. That's, I'm sorry, that's my word. That's not what God's word says, right? We'll look at this in a minute. Actually, let me just read 17 through 20 together so we can, uh, I failed to put it on a slide, but we'll look at it uh, piece by piece. But here we have uh, Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. If you were to picture maybe Lincoln at the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln came up to the platform, and in their day, as in our day, politicians were known for lofty, long speeches. Uh, Lincoln got up that day, and he stood there before the crowd, and he spoke an absolute minimum number of words. I'm not going to repeat it. You can go Google it and read it. It's powerful. But when he concluded these few words, he stood there, and there wasn't a sound because people were expecting more, but people were also dumbfounded by the, uh, the, the power of the words that he spoke. And after a moment of silence, when, he, when they realized he wasn't going to be speaking anymore, they, they erupted in applause. And that, that speech by Abraham Lincoln is very famous. We know it today. Uh, we know of its existence here as we talk about, uh, as we talk about this, um, uh, these four principles and we talk about the, the kingdom ethic, uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount. This is Christ's, this is some of the most, his most famous words, chapters 5, 6, and 7, our, our king, our, our, it's a speech that he gives. He's teaching. It's a, it's a, he's, he's communicating God's purpose and his words to the people, and he's expecting them to, to, um, to apply it to their life. But he starts off with a bang, right? He just starts off with some tremendously powerful words, and he starts off by saying, Do not think that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I do not come to destroy, but to fulfill so I probably should have done this differently. I should have put the verse first. And, but it's Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law and the prophets. That's principle number one. As we are talking about this ethic, these principles of ethic, this is a principle that we should take into our life. As we're living out the virtues, this must be true or the virtues are false. This must be true. We must understand that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law and the prophets. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a good moral example. He's just not this famous person that was a flash in the pan. No, he's the son of God, and he fulfilled the law in the prophets. So as we, as we look at this text, we, we start off in the beginning. He says, do not think. Uh, he's, remember, prior to this, he called his disciples up to him. Now, there, listen, there's probably hundreds or thousands of people listening to this event. Jesus has already left his obscurity, and now he is center stage. People are taking notice of this man who's teaching with authority, who's performing miracles, and, and, but he calls the disciples close to him, and as he's speaking to his disciples, he says, do not think that I come to destroy the law and the prophets. There were those uh, Messiah figures who had come prior to Jesus, and, and they were the ones that were saying that they had the answer. Right? They were going to get rid of the power of Rome over them, and, and God was going to work through them to do this amazing thing politically or militarily or whatever. And then they were the flash in the pan because they usually died and never resurrected. All right? Jesus is saying there's some sense that the, the, there's a belief in the air, in that, in that presence, where do not think that I come to destroy the law and the prophets. He says, I, I do not come to destroy, but to fulfill. This is, uh, I was doing a lot of reading on this, and, and I don't have time to go into all the stuff I learned and, and was challenged with, but uh, I, I'm routinely uh, uh, coming across 
people who write, Jesus was either the Son of God or he was a lunatic. And we have to understand that. Because if he's sitting here talking to a Jewish audience and saying, listen, I didn't come to destroy the law. Well, that's good news. I came to fulfill them. That's insane. That's blasphemous. And it would be if Jesus wasn't the Son of God, the Word of God. It would be blasphemous. But no, he, he is saying, he, this is the way he starts off his sermon. Don't think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. What does it mean to fulfill the law and the prophets? Well, up to this point in the text, Matthew has already, has already used the word fulfill multiple times. Uh, and, he, and he drew in multiple. You'll remember, you go back and read the first four chapters, and, and you'll see how, how uh, this was foretold and came to be. This was foretold and came to be. This was foretold. And he, and he quotes Isaiah and Amos and Micah and these different, these different uh, prophets, right? And he's saying, so, so this idea of fulfillment is part of what Matthew, in the power of the Holy Spirit, is trying to convey to us in, in the writing. But this, it, it means more than just fulfilling prophecy. When we talk about Jesus fulfilling the law, we are talking about the reality that Jesus has completely lived out the law in all aspects without sin. He has fulfilled it in his life and in his person. As he declares that I have come to not to destroy, uh, but to fulfill, it is a declaration that I, my life is different than your lives, if I was Jesus, right? You, you get what I mean. He's saying, listen, as he's preaching to these people, I'm different. I have come to fulfill. At that particular moment in time, Jesus had never sinned. And he never sinned from that moment forward. And that is something no one listening to his voice could say. And that's nothing, that's nothing any of us can say as well. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when we talk about the law and the prophets, they all point. It, it is a way of saying the whole revealed text of God, which would have been in the Old Testament at this point, right? Law and the prophets. But it is a capital L. We'll see a little L in a little bit. But it, 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 he's saying, listen, I have come to fulfill everything that was written by Moses and the prophets and, and everything was pointing forward to me. The whole sacrificial system, it was, it was like a shadow. Uh, and then I've come on the scene. Now, he doesn't say that black and white, but we know when he died on that cross. He died as the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of mankind. So when we talk about this, this, this first uh, principle. Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law and the prophets. Do you believe this principle? Is this something that guides you through your day as you seek to exercise the, 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 the kingdom virtues? Is this, this principle has to be there because you have to believe he fulfilled it all, or you have a deficient view of Jesus Christ. The second principle, uh, as we move right along, God's law has universal authority in the lives of believers until all is fulfilled in Christ. I'm going to pause, and this one I'm kind of glad I'm giving you the principle first before we go to the text. Read that through. God's law has universal authority. Now, it is a little L law. I'm not exactly sure why the translators and, 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 and have done that. I do believe what, what is being said here. It's not the law as in the Torah, the first five books. That's capital L, right? So capital law and prophets 
capital L, Law and Prophets, is probably talking about the Torah and the rest of the Old Testament. Here it's little l, but it's basically probably taking all the, the whole Old Testament together as one thing, and it's saying God's law has universal authority in the lives of believers. That means God's law has universal authority on you and me. And, and this is where the tension of the text comes into play because we've heard so many times, we just studied Galatians just prior to doing uh, this study in Matthew. And we know that sancti- excuse me, justification is by faith, not by the law. We, we beat that truth into the ground. There's no one here that sat through that series that should ha- somehow think that their good works is bringing justification of their sins. No, justification, a right standing before God is all a work of God in our lives. We bring nothing to the table. There's nothing good in us. So God's law has universal authority, according to the the verse we're going to read here, in the lives of believers. Believers, Christians often say, well, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. Careful. Careful. All right, this is a complicated discussion. These are four verses that have produced a whole lot of writing and a whole lot of perspectives. But I'm just saying, be careful with that statement that we are no longer under law, we are under grace. It depends on what you mean by that, if it's true or not. The reality is, from the text that we're going to read here, is that law, God's law, still has something to do in our lives. But we are certainly children of grace, because it's all of grace. His, this universal authority that the law has in the lives of believers, it will have that universal authority until all is fulfilled in Christ. Now let's look at the verse. Matthew 5, 18. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Jesus is sitting on the mount. He's speaking the truth. I mean, remember, this is almost like Moses. Moses went up the mount received the law, came down, and spoke the law to the people, right? Jesus is that prophet greater than Moses who is being portrayed as going up on the mount and speaking with his own authority. He is God in the flesh, and he's speaking, and he's teaching, and he's inviting people to learn and grow. He says, listen, assuredly, without a doubt, I am saying to you, there's no equivocation. Hear me clearly. Till heaven and earth pass away. When is that happening? When are, the, when are we going to, that heaven, by the way, is not heaven as in God's abode, uh, God's place of dwelling. That, that is heaven is the idea of the, of the heavens, the created order of things, the heavens and the earth, the, the space, the land, the water, right? So, till heaven and earth pass away. We know from Scripture that heaven and earth are going to be they're going to be refined. That's one view uh, in the sense that they are going to be consumed and all impurity and all unholiness and all unrighteousness is going to be done away with. And therefore, what remains will be the new heaven and the new earth. But he's saying, listen, the law that has authority in our lives and has an authority in the lives of those listening to him, the kingdom principles that he's portraying, they have this authority and they will not pass away until heaven and earth pass away. He says it again, in the sense, till all is fulfilled. They are, they are parallel statements. 
And Jesus is saying, listen, there is this thing we have to wrestle with. People were, they wanted to get out from Rome. They had their own idea of what God was doing. And, and Jesus is sitting there to try and set them straight. He says, my law will remain. Capital, um, excuse me, little l, talk, not talking about all aspects of the Mosaic law. It's talking about God's commandments. And we'll, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute. Uh, but I'm just saying it's, it's not talking about just the Torah, and it's not talking about just the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's not talking about the, the, uh, the, all the sacrifice of animals. And all, all those things were already fulfilled in Christ when Christ was crucified, died, buried, and resurrected. All that stuff was fulfilled in him. But there's aspects of, such as the, the Ten Commandments that we are called to live out. We're called to live those things out, not for righteousness. But because of the righteousness we have, we actually have the ability to do that. Now, this little passage in between here says, listen, for one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law. I I believe that people often use this to talk about the preservation of Scripture, the preservation of the Bible, right? Not one jot or one tittle. The one jot would be the, the, maybe uh, it's uh, the yod in Hebrew. It's this little, little dash, this little, uh, it's just a little letter. It's the littlest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. But the, the one tittle there is like, uh, I, I think uh, some of you are familiar with serif fonts, right? S-E-R-I-F, I think it's called. And it's uh, the ones that had that little, like, doot, little mark on the end to make it like, kind of fancy looking or whatever. Uh, in, in a regular text, it would be the difference between the letter P and the letter R. That little, you know, uh, diagonal line that drops from the P to make the R. That, that's the idea. It's just a, it's just a little line. But it, it, it's very specific. It means something. And, and Jesus is saying, listen, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, there's not one aspect of the authority of God's word that is going to be diminished. It is secure. It stands. He's not so much talking about the trans, uh, about the, uh, about the uh, trans, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the word I just said. But anyway, you get it. The idea of the preservation of God's word. He's talking about the authority of God's word. It will stand all the way through until Jesus comes. And then for eternity, I mean, at, at the sense of God will still be in control, but in terms of what we understand the law, when, when Jesus, when all things are consummated in him, there's no more need for the law. Principle number three, there are, I put temporal slash eternal consequences for Christians who break or obey God's commands. There's a question about whether or not this text, let me read the text and we'll go back. Whosoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That's a consequence. If you're going to, if you're going to uh, either teach against the commandment or pe- teach people to disregard the commandment, remember that statement. I'm not under law, I'm under grace. Well, you be careful with that because this, you might be guilty of this. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments. There are definitely commandments with more weight than other commandments. And Jesus is, is acknowledging that. But he's saying, listen, you don't have the right to decide which commands to follow and which ones not to. Now, now I'll go ahead and, and just say that when we talk about this, this God's commandments... Thankfully and helpfully, many of the prophets, including Jesus, have boiled down the, the law to 
two things. I will love the Lord thy God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and I will love my neighbor as myself. And then Jesus even said, love fulfills the law. Love fulfills the law. So as, as, we are, as we are going to transition in a moment to a group of people that didn't quite get that part, we as New Testament believers know this to be true. And if, and if, if the principles that we're talking here are building and uh, helping us understand the kingdom ethic that Jesus is teaching and, and, and that we are supposed to have a basis, we're supposed to understand if we are not living out the law, which has been summed up as loving others and loving God, loving God and loving others, if we are not characterized by that, if, we are, if that's not part of our virtue, our Christian kingdom virtue, then something's wrong. So when we talk about there are consequences for Christians, these, there's, in this life, that's the idea of temporal, are there consequences in this life for us disobeying the law of God? Well, without a doubt. I'm just, I just can't name them all. Is there an eternal consequence for Christians who, who break or obey God's commandments? Yes, remember, we're talking about Christians here. And if you go back to the Corinthians text that said, you know, listen, you know, your good works, are they gold, silver, precious stone, or are they wood, hay, and stubble? We, we know that there are works that are going to be done that will not pass inspection. And I think that's, the, that's one of the ideas here. There are consequences for us as genuine believers. You do not have to go get uh, what, what one author pointed out or one preacher pointed out. Uh, you don't have to go get a farm animal and slaughter that animal. That's been done. There's no reason for sacrificial system anymore because of Christ. But listen, to love your neighbor as yourself... You're on the hook for that one. We are called to, to live in love of God and love for our neighbor. And so uh, there are temporal and eternal. And the eternal is the idea of rewards. And, and, and we don't know. We don't know if, the, if Jesus is, 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 he's not expanding on these things to, uh, for us to fully understand that. But we know elsewhere from Scripture there are levels of rewards. And he gives, and later in Matthew, we'll, we'll talk about some of the parables that teach that. But principle three is there are consequences for Christians who break or obey God's commandments. There, and this is the idea. If, if we are characterized by living kingdom virtues with, with understanding its foundation or in kingdom ethics, these principles that, that the Word of God teaches, then certainly I think we have to understand that, that if we're obeying them, there are temporal benefits, temporal uh, blessings Blessings, blessings on the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit and meek and all those things. There are temporal blessings that come from this. And then eternal, uh, I think at the eternal, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So I, I think as we bring all the scripture in, these principles are, are not exhaustive, but they help us understand how it all fits together. We are called to live a certain way, but we are not called to live a certain way on the outside only. It has to be going on inside. So whoever breaks one or teaches men. And so that's leading us into this next, this next one. There are those who are teaching. There are those in Jesus' presence at that very moment that are teaching men false righteousness. But there are also those probably in their midst, specifically his disciples, who, are, who will be uh, doing and will be teaching them, and they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
And, and this is not for us to pursue greatness. It is for us to pursue Christ. And God gets to determine who is great and who is least. The last principle we'll look at is this, out of chapter 5, verse 20. And, it, and it's this. Those who possess a false righteousness will not enter the kingdom of God. Those who possess a false righteousness will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We've been talking about believers this whole time. But what does it say here? For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember when I said that Jesus started off with a bang. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do away with them. I'm not going to abolish them, right? I'm going to fulfill them. What? You're crazy. And he would be if he wasn't the Son of God. Here, still is his four-verse intro, he says, listen, I'm telling you that your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, or you're not going to get to the kingdom of heaven. What? You're crazy. Because in their culture, in that society, the scribes, the Pharisees, as one author put it, they're the good guys. They're the guys that are, are studying this day and night, memorizing, let me get to the Old Testament, memorizing the whole thing, helping others understand what it means. And, 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 and these scribes were very well respected, even more so than the Pharisees, more than likely. The scribes were the educated ones. The Pharisees were the conservative ones. And when you put them together, conservative, smart people, that sounds a lot like the people we respect. We're not, we're not known to be uh, pursuing uh, liberal theologians, the ones that would discount the deity of Christ, that would throw away the virgin birth, that would say the word of God is a, it's a good story. That's liberal theology. But we, we, Jesus is saying here, and these people are hearing that they're on his every word, and he says, listen, you, are, you have to possess a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and everyone hearing that would be thinking, that's impossible. They're the most godly people we know. And it's amazing truth, because what Jesus is saying here, he's going to explain in the coming verses. Because he's going to say, you've heard it said. And, and they did hear it said. They heard it from the scribes and the Pharisees when they're reading God's word and they're explaining what it means. They did hear these things. But Jesus said, but I say. But I say there's something more. And it's the idea that these people, he's saying, listen, those that possess a false righteousness, they're, they're righteous on the outside, but on the inside, Jesus is going to say, I never knew you at the great white throne judgment. I never knew you. Not that I knew you and you, you transgressed and therefore I kicked you out of the boat, if you remember that illustration months ago. Those who possess a false righteousness will never enter the kingdom of God. And he's talking about the scribes and Pharisees. And he's saying, listen, you've got to have a different kind of righteousness. Acts of genuine righteousness must be motivated by one's faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, the outside action and the inward faith are the same, right? They're all based on, I have faith in Jesus Christ. I want to do right. Kingdom virtues. But I don't want to just do right. I want to 
be right. I want to understand the principles, the ethic that, are, that, that are undergirds all this. I, I want my faith to be through and through. We are called to be people of genuine righteousness. And every, every genuine Christian is, is that person, right? We have the ability because of the Holy Spirit in us. So a, a life which displays kingdom virtues has its foundation in Christ's kingdom ethic. And, and I, I don't know, uh, I'll, I'll bring this up again next week, and then we'll see how, how it goes from there if Joe, Joe chooses when he preaches on the 24th. Um, so Jesus will apply these principles throughout his Sermon on the Mount. He's going to, for the next, all the way into chapter 7, he's going to be fleshing all this out. And I ask you, will you receive his application to your life? And this isn't the application necessarily. Maybe it is right now. It's something that's been said today. Some word of God that made, that made it through into your heart and mind. But I'm saying in the coming weeks, as we, as we understand more and more what this kingdom ethic and kingdom virtues are, you know, will you, future tense, receive the application that he's going to bring to your life? It's the idea of active listening. Listening with the intent that God will do a work in your life and in my life. That's the invitation that we have, not only to live out the virtues, but to understand that as Jesus applies his word to our lives, we are called to respond. Uh, we're going to conclude with that, and uh, I'll close in a word of prayer, but I, I do want to say that this, these kingdom virtues and kingdom ethic, they apply to you. If you don't understand what I've said today, if you're struggling with understanding what your life means to be in Christ and, and how you might be a child of God or not a child of God, we invite you. Speak to, my, speak to me, one of the other pastors. Speak to the person sitting next to you. If they can't answer, talk to the person next to them. And if they can't answer, the next to them. And eventually we'll have a revival. There'll be all kinds of people getting saved and because uh, they'll, they'll understand that all this applies to every one of us. God's word has gone forth. And we, I invite you to, to respond to it. Father, I thank you for this time that we've had together. pray, Lord, that you truly would be honored and glorified by the way we live and what undergirds the way we live. I pray that you would be glorified in our faith as we live out these, these values and this ethic in the world around us. Lord, I pray that you give us this, the ability to stand in the midst of persecution. I pray that you give us boldness, however it be so meek. And I pray, Lord, that you continue to call people to yourself, continue to call people to faith in Jesus Christ through, the, through your children that are here in this room or hearing us online. May you be glorified as we, as we invite you to apply your word to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.